Hi guys, my name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. I can't believe we're at episode 70. Okay, hang on, I'm just trying to take off my jacket <laughs> so that it doesn't make weird noises as I record this. But yeah, back to 70. Yeah, I never ever expected to be 70 episodes in and to still have people listening. <laughs> I thought it would only be me. <laughs> so once again, starting off by saying thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for being part of the tribe. And in case you haven't joined us on Instagram, you can find us at Legally Clueless Podcast. There is a very special, dear, necessary, powerful story coming up in this episode. Take a listen to this. The doctor thinks it's uh, possibly a cancer, but they're still investigating. And I felt like I was standing outside looking at myself talking to my dad and thinking, yeah, this can't be possible. This guy that to me was Superman was now helpless. And right after he smiled at me, mm. he puked on himself. So he soiled himself and he told me, Nipanguze, please. Those were the last words I ever had him speak. We had to leave because he coded. His heart stopped beating. So they had to resuscitate. For me in my head, like I'm just thinking, no, don't let this be the last time. So I'll share a little later in this episode why this story is so important and so dear to me. We're going to get into that. But first, I want you to check out the song of the week. Yes. So I randomly stumbled on this song on YouTube. You know how it just like jumps to songs? Is that what it's called? No, it does its thing. Wait, just what is it? What is there's a word for it? <laughs> anyway, YouTube put me on this song. I don't think it has a music video, but what I watched was a live performance and this chick's voice is out of this world. So the name of the song is Own Your Own. It's by Yasmin Lacey. So if you check out the description of this episode, I've put a link to the song in there. It has made it onto, you know, a couple of episodes ago, I told you how I have a playlist I listen to when I want to jumpstart my tears. <laughs> ah. But uh, I'm so okay with the weird things that I do. I do have a jump starting tears playlist. And so it's made it on there. Not because it's a sad song, but I don't know. Maybe it's just when I listen to it. Because the lyrics are really about stock taking, checking in with yourself. Are you doing okay? And at the point when it popped up via YouTube, I was not doing okay. <laughs> so because of that reason it'll always be a sad song for me although i don't think she intended for it to you know just l check out the song <laughs> just listen to it and let me know away from that speaking of crying last week i shared that i was in a bit of a funk partly because of grief just doing its thing where it just smacks you across the face as you're going through life with heavy emotions <sighs> and i don't know part of me just doesn't want to keep sharing about this here but when I started this podcast it's not a show I started it because there was no space for me on traditional radio to be a human <laughs> I was like a robot so on the days when I was crying right before my alarm rang and then my alarm rang and I got into studio and you know put on the mics i couldn't i couldn't share that i was not okay which is oh it's okay to not be okay right but on traditional radio i never ever had that space to share with people that today's 
a shit day. I actually think I probably only shared it once when it was like my mom's memorial or something. Imagine. And I was on that show every single day, six days out of a week for years. And so when I created this podcast, I wasn't creating a show. I was creating a space where it would be okay for me to be human. And in turn, then it became a space where it's okay for you as well to be human here, right? And that includes the dope parts about being human, which in 2020 are all of 2%. (laughs) But also like the shitstorms. That's then allowed me to, in this episode, pick up from the last episode. Because at a point I was like, I don't want to be sad all the time on this podcast. I don't want to make people feel sorry for me or I don't want to mess somebody's mood. But at the same time, I don't want to pretend, yeah? First, thank you to everybody who just sent on the podcast hotline such kind words my way. I really do appreciate them. But I also was trying out this thing where I would find one thing in the day to live for and just use that to fuel me through the day. So Monday, I was, you know, all about going out to record a story, which I did. And it's such a beautiful story. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. It's all about identity. And it's just so, it's powerful. It's so, and it was like a two hour long, (laughs) two hour long recording. So I really did enjoy it. And then coming back, from recording that story, my car decides to stall. People close to me know that's like my kryptonite. The one thing that can make me cry instantly is my car stalling. I don't know. I'm just so attached to it. So in this moment, the car stalled. I put it to the side of the road. I called my partner, Falgun, and he's, God bless him, he's such a fixer. He was just like, stay where you are, send me like a live location thing on WhatsApp. I'll be with you in like 20 minutes. And he was. And in that moment, obviously now I'm just feeling sad. I'm just like, well, (laughs) here I was trying to find one thing to be okay with on this Monday. And so I'm feeling like sorry for myself. You know how we do those things. And I get a message from somebody who's a friend and also listens to the podcast. So he was listening to the podcast at that point, has no idea that I'm on the side of the road with my stalled car and my hazards and just being like, what the heck? And he sends me a message saying, hey, I'm sending you hugs. It was a sweet message. Shout out to you, Malonza. It was so interesting. The message came in and I was just like, man, This happens to me every time I'm down. The universe just finds a way of sending people when I most need them to do something that to them seems like a small thing. But at that moment for me, it's like huge. And so I was like, okay, cool. We're back on track. We can do this. So file arrives. We swap cars because me, I'm just like me. Imagine I don't have energy. (laughs) I just want to go and get into bed. (laughs) So I go home. Tuesday, I had a follow-up doctor's appointment that just went... It just went. <laughs> then I get a, a, a chat from a friend and there was a summer summer demonstrations happening and he'd gotten arrested. Man, our cops are so nonsensical and our system is so broken. Like we have so much work to do, but you know, that's a story for another day. Leave the docks, go to the cop station and 
I'm proud that everything was cleared without there having to be any bribing happening because he had done nothing wrong. You know what I mean? So they were just trying to frustrate the situation, but whatever. Then I come home and I have a phone call for the project I told you about in the last episode that I'm so proud of myself for getting and the call went really well. And then I recorded the story you're going to hear in this episode. So recording that story and I didn't know that he was going to talk about grief the way he did. Actually, I didn't even know he was going to talk about grief. Listening to that story really, it did something for me. It really did something for me. So as much as the day was like, haphazard i understand now how some of you say you relate to the stories or they healed something for you because that's what this story did for me which is why i was just like you know what i have to share it this week this week anyway so that's tuesday wednesday i linked up with a friend and i don't think i did much work that day and so i learned that if like me you have a hard time reaching out to your friends when you're not okay you could just send hey i'm free today which is what i sent to a friend of mine (laughs) And we ended up just hanging out that afternoon. We didn't even talk about what I was going through or what she was possibly going through. It was just like a timeout. So if you're that person who doesn't know how to ask for help, you can try that. I hope it works. And then Thursday, I got my shea butter and my black seed oil. Yo, black seed oil will change your life. Like it's toned my face, like my skin, to the point that I need new foundation shades. Because (laughs) kumbe... My previous skin um, tone was not my real skin tone. (laughs) Who would have thought? But yeah, so try and get yourself some black seed oil. In fact, I will put a link in the description to the page where I get mine from, just in case, you know, you want to try it out. But just try not to get it close to your eyes because that thing washes. It will really like, your eyes will tear up. So yeah, the the week was just like me taking it a day at a time and just like, whew, trying to breathe through everything slowly and slowly. I'm glad that as much as it's still slightly hard to be recording this right now, I'm happy that I'm, I'm doing it, you know, <laughs> I'm happy that I've not stayed in bed or whatever, so Yeah, that's one thing that's giving me fuel for today, I guess, right? So why was it important for me to immediately share the story that I recorded on Tuesday, which is a story by Musa, aka Moses. So I met him through an ex of mine. I remember one day, uh, Musa and I linked up for lunch. I don't even remember who asked who to lunch. But anyway, we hooked up for lunch at Chicken Inn off of Langata Road. I'll never forget it. It was just the two of us and he told me that he'd lost his dad a few years back. There's something that I didn't know. He just kind of let me vent about my mom. At the point that we were having this lunch, it was probably maybe a year after my mom had died. Tops, a year tops. So I was just, I was at such an angry point. I I think I hated everybody who didn't consistently acknowledge my grief which is irrational, right? Because life is happening to other people as well. But I felt like my life had stopped. So why was everybody else's life just going ahead like everything was okay, you know? So I I just had this resentment for everybody who seemed to be continuing to live and wasn't acknowledging my grief at the time. So he really let me vent. It was probably the first time outside of my family that I interacted with somebody who had lost 
somebody close to them. And that's why I think to date we will always be friends. And I will always be thankful that he took the time out to do that for me. Also, when we were recording the story on Tuesday, he managed to put a label and words to feelings that I have that I haven't been able to articulate. And so that's why I'm just like, yo, you definitely need to hear this in real time. Also, when we think about grief and just emotions, not a lot of guys share what they're feeling emotionally, A, what they're feeling emotionally when it comes to grief, B. Right, so I'm so thankful that he did that. A hundred African stories. There is no proper life that you live in university as a musician. If I constantly just walked around feeling sorry for myself, I'm never gonna get anything done. Uh, there was a bit of frustration in between all of that. I've been breaking my back for this company. Therapy is not for the weak or for the crazy. Stories from Africa. My name is uh, Musa Guya. I come from Nairobi. Kenya. And if there's one thing I've struggled with in my life, it has been the loss of my father. That is, for me, truly the most testing time in my life. Um, in April of 2008, I was in third year of medical school. And I remember coming home after a long week of doing med school. Yeah, med school can just get hectic and everything. So I come from a long week. I came home. I sat down with my father in the living room and was trying to explain to me about a pain that he had and he had been suffering for the past over a month or so on his left shoulder and um, of course my my mom had been nagging him about it yeah go to the hospital go see a doctor but yeah you know african men and yeah it's not that bad i'm going to try and uh, uh, use some painkillers or maybe i just slept badly or so he waited and waited and waited so i think probably six weeks um, after the commencement of the symptoms, uh, the pain finally got to a place where it was disturbing sleep. He'd wake up in the middle of the night, sharp pains, can't sleep. My mom would have to give him a massage, uh, sometimes use uh, warm compressions, at least to kind of relieve the pain. Got to a point where he needed now to go to hospital. Yeah, and I remember when I came home that, that weekend, actually I came home on a, on a weekday, it was on a Wednesday. I remember they were sat at the dining table. And I can still remember him, like, putting his elbow over his head, trying to explain to me how some movements were hard to do. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. Um, So go see a doctor. Of course, since I was in med school, I was very interested because this is what we were actually doing. We just started literally touching patients and investigating uh, what what ails them and what happened to them. So I sat there and asked him questions like I would ask any patient. And yeah, he tried to explain to me, show me with uh, uh, movements, yeah, where the pain emanated from and where, where it radiated to. That was it. And he was going to hospital with my mom. So I think I remember I was, I had to read for something. So I decided, okay, let me read then when they come back, at least they can let me know what had transpired in the doctor's office. Of course, they came back later on in the evening. He had done an x-ray. It didn't reveal much. So he was told to go back. And thus, this was um, a process that continued for the next probably two weeks. Um, he probably saw two other doctors um, in that period before he actually um, got to one of my professors who was teaching me in school at the time. He sent him for a test that revealed something 
quite sinister. On the last visit to the hospital, he had gone alone because I think mom had to work and I was at school. He waited uh, for me to come home and he took me for a walk. He was asking me questions. He told me, yeah, we've seen this on some imaging studies and the imaging studies have shown that I may possibly have what we call met- metastasis uh, to my to my shoulder blade and uh, that might be the reason why I am in so much pain on my left shoulder. He was telling me that uh, the doctor thinks it's uh, possibly a cancer, but they're still investigating, so they don't know. This was one of those moments when everything as you know it, the world as you know it, comes to a pause. It's like one of those mm-hmm. uh, out-of-body experiences, and you feel like, okay, wait, am I asleep? Is this really happening right now? And I felt like I was standing outside looking at myself, talking to my dad and thinking, yeah, this can't be possible. Like, this can't be real, you know. Mm-hmm. This really can't be happening. Not to Superman, at least, you know. Because he had been Superman to me all my life. Like, just, like, brief background, my dad was, like, he was super athletic. I've never seen him sick a day in his life. We always used to, like, run run around together like in the estate like playfully you know even at his advanced age he used to play football a bit he never used to drink he never used to smoke and he was really into traditional foods and kind of clean eating so it's like why the hell would something like this be happening to him this is unfair all the people in this world that do drugs and all these harmful things that they put into their bodies and they still get to live He actually told me the news first, out of everybody in the family. Probably, I think, even before he told uh, my mom. I guess because he was thinking maybe I'd panic less because I'm a bit more knowledgeable in the in the field, or at least I was pursuing something in the field. So I didn't really tell anyone, and I think that's just one of the ways that I've always processed things. I don't want to panic until I know what I'm panicking about. I think being a young man at that time also, it was probably very hard to share such things very hard to be vulnerable around anybody else you know in that age you're yeah like you're a man you're a young african man you know like you should be tough toughened be the man now step up and things like that so it was really it was a really conflicting time fast forward to a week later now when the results were in it was found that my dad a cancer known as multiple myelitis a cancer of the blood so it was then decided that he should go in for for chemotherapy and that was in april probably at the beginning of april this went on for up until september of the same year when he died it was basically guys in my family taking turns to go to hospital i barely went to school that year from april to september it was like a pivotal year mm. i was either in hospital or I was at home in bed because I can't come out of bed. As reality started becoming more and more stark, I got more into drinking. That that was one of the coping mechanisms. Like I started drinking more than I usually mm. do. Like I'd be drinking on a loose Monday afternoon. And you know, the funny thing about this misery thing, you'll always find company. You'll always find someone who would be willing to support you to do these things, you know. So, like, on a Monday afternoon, I'd call up one of my friends, and God bless their souls, because 
they actually got me through a lot. Just being able to call someone and say, ah, see, we just hang out, we just drink, mm. or we just play games. I was trying to probably detach from the whole situation, the whole reality, trying to keep myself busy with other things. There are times I'd go three, four, five days without going to hospital because it was too much. This guy that to me was Superman was now helpless. The circle of life was truly coming back around, you know, like he had become a child again. It reached a point like he couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. The chemo had gotten him down so much. He was in bed most of the time. Initially, it was assisted walking. Then now he couldn't walk. So he just they just used to do therapy for him on the bed, turn him, you know, he started developing bed. So this is between April and September. So try and picture that in your mind, seeing someone going, going from completely healthy to being bedridden. One of the things that stood out for me in that period was the last, the last time my dad talked to me. I remember it was on a Friday and he had just done a session. So when I just walked into hospital, I've probably come from a bender drinking myself silly to try and forget. So I think Thursday I was drinking, then now Friday lunchtime I went to see him. And as soon as I got there, like, it's kind of like he smiled at me, you know. And right after he smiled at me, mm -hmm. he puked on himself. So he soiled himself and he told me, Nipanguze, please. Those were the last words I ever had him speak. For me, as the firstborn son in the family, I think probably to those be good. Just give a quick background of who my father was to me. He was my best friend. He was the guy who taught me, like, most of the things I know about life. He gave me a hunger for knowledge. He steered me in directions that I didn't even know that I wanted. So he was always my sounding board. We'd wake up in the morning, 3.30, 4am, to watch politics. This was a regular habit. And to this day, my sleep is still, my sleep patterns are still kind of the same. He taught me how to question everything. He taught me how to use logic. taught me how to believe in myself. On top of being my best friend, like he was... Let me just say he was everything else to me. And this takes away nothing from my other parents. Yeah, by the way, I have two moms. So my my dad had two wives. So I had two mothers, both wonderful to me growing up. Both took care of me so well. But the bond that I had with my dad was unlike anything else I've ever had in my life. So that was Friday. I left the hospital feeling like, oh my, like my heart was just like sinking. Because I could see it. You could see him struggling to breathe, which means, obviously, talking is now becoming more and more of a problem. Now everything is just premium, you know, final hours. I didn't know it at the time, but now just looking back in hindsight, you know, like just the final hours, like as he was steadily, steadily powering down. So this was Friday. So I left on Friday. Guess where I went? Straight to the club. No. Because mm -hmm. I was trying to, to numb this experience, trying to forget, trying to escape. Yeah, and escaping is <laughs> quite the coping mechanism, you know. Yeah, and another thing, like, just a side story. My dad used to be known as the village dancer. You know, these were stories now I was being told by my other uncles. So he was the guy at the parties who would dance. And these mm. are things I was finding out posthumously, you know. He would dance, be dancing, like, all night from, like, and that was, like, that was literally me in high school, in campus. And another thing, a big thing he introduced me to was music. My dad bought me the first Eminem cassette, Marshall Mathers LP. That's the first time I listened to him. And he loved this song. What? Filling out my closet. Where, yeah, where he was, where Eminem was talking about 
his mom. My dad and his mom didn't have the best relationship. We never really got into that, but these were probably things I was these were things I was finding out like probably later on. And he loved that song. And my dad was a typical Luo dad. He had a Pujo four or five. So growing up, I listened to everything from Dolly Parton to Madilu System, all the rumba you can think of, all the, the funk you can think of, soul, eighties music, rides to school, him taking us to school in the blue Pujo four or five. And it had like a powerful surround system, you know. Like it was unlike nothing else I'd seen at that time. He was so into music, like he really spruced up the music system in the car. So it was really a treat. You'd get to listen to music and you know it was a twelve C D changer, so you can't you can't know what you're going to get today. Is it rumba? Is it uh, classical western? Is it hip hop that sometimes we'd try and sneak in there because ah, Dad, your music is boring. Can we change to more local more more updated <laughs> things, you know? So those are the things like we used to really enjoy in our mornings. We had like one of these Sony systems and I remember putting in that Eminem tape and listening to it. I don't know if you remember those, those tapes that were sold, um, outside Nakumat Mega. Yeah. Nyayo Stadium there. They were green. In the boxes. Yeah, in the in boxes. The boxes. The so guys, all, all the tapes the were cartons. green. Yeah. You remember like you'd find like Mariah Carey versus Monica or something like that, yeah. you know, like Eminem versus DMX, you know, like crazy things. So there was side A, <laughs> side B, you know, those were the, the big moments in life, you know, but at the time you didn't know it. Just hearing his voice. Hearing his voice, like when he came, he came back home. Like you'd know, you'd hear the the pujo roaring into the gate. You know, you know how powerful a pujo is. They'd park into the gate, and he'd always beep twice when he he had parked. You know, before he turned off the car, and he'd stay probably five ten minutes listening to a song or two. Then he'd come out, and he'd always greet us in the same way. For all those years in my life, and I could hear his voice bellowing through the house. You know. And everybody would know, daddy's home. And you'd run downstairs or from wherever you are and jump on his leg, jump on his shoulder. And it was the same for years. For me, he was the ultimate man, you know, of course, because this is a guy I've seen growing up. And I've always felt like his passing denied me access to being a complete man. With that, I mean that, you know, there were some things that I still needed him to teach me. There were some things I still needed him to show me. There were some things I still needed to sound off him, but I didn't get the chance to. I think I've probably digressed a bit, but yeah. So it was Friday. He vomited and he told me to wipe him, please, which I did. And I remember he held my hand and he kind of nodded it like as a thank you. you know? So that was Friday. I left and I went to the club. Of course, Benda, Saturday. There was always something so therapeutic about washing clothes for me. So Sunday morning, I was washing clothes around 9, 10, 11. Then I get the call that, yo, dad has been sent to HDU. So of course, I was fearful. So I put aside my clothes and I rushed to hospital. And he was in HDU. So they were only allowing two or three family members to come in at a time. And I remember my sister who was in the States had been calling from Saturday. Yo, what's the progress on dad? You know, and I think it really sucks for you to be away from the country when someone close to you is severely sick. You feel like you, you want a blow by blow of what's going on. But on this side, people 
who have been going to hospital every day, people who have been seeing their person deteriorate every day. Just really don't feel like talking all the time about that situation, you know. It was a really tricky time, especially for my sister. And I remember she was especially agitated on Saturday night. And it's one of those funny things in life, you know. She was just like trying to get through and trying to get through, like, guys, what's going on, you know? And she kept calling and she kept calling. And I remember guys didn't really want to talk to her because they didn't know what to tell her. So when I got to hospital and I went in, she had finally gotten through to my mom and my mom had talked to her and told her the situation. So she immediately called me. And I remember we had to leave the first time. That was around probably 2 p.m., 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Sunday. We had to leave because he coded, you know, like he was... His heart stopped beating, so they had to resuscitate. And I remember I talked to my sis, and she told me, just tell me the truth. What is going on? I don't know. I, I think I just cracked at the time I was told that. Dad, Dad is not doing well. He's not breathing too well. Uh, we've been told to stand outside for a bit as they try to resuscitate. We go back again, probably after like an hour so around four or five, again, we go in. We see him, stay with him. You know, now you're trying to hold his hand. You know, for me in my head, like I'm just thinking, no, don't let, don't let this be the last time. Don't let this be the last time. And I don't know why that was so, it was so persistent, a thought in my head. Looking back now, I think it was all the guilt that accumulated from the fact that some days I never went to hospital. Some days I was going on benders. Some days I was actually having fun with my friends as my dad lay in bed fighting for his life. So I held his hand. His hand was warm and I felt pulse was weak. There are habits, there are things you will always do because you're in, you're in the field. So as a med student, I found myself subconsciously examining my father. These thoughts are quickly interrupted by another alarm. This shrieking that goes off in the room and the nurses again kick us out. So again, we have to wait for another hour or two. By this time, it's getting, it begins to get dark. It's around six. Seven. The professor who was actually treating my dad walked in and found these guys resuscitating my dad. They managed to resuscitate him uh, the second time. Then um, we managed to go back in. This time I went. I went with my with my mom and my younger sister. Standing there looking at him. I guess everybody was trying to gather their last moments or last memories of who this man was to them what he meant to them. At least that's what I think, because that's what I was doing. So again, alarm goes off. We have to get out. And as we get out of the room, 30 minutes in, I see, um, oh, actually my mom suggested that we pray. So we were holding hands and we were praying. But 30 minutes into the last resuscitation, I see the professor walking out and I knew Superman is no more. So we finished praying. As I open my eyes, I see the lead nurse waiting for us at the door and she calls us and she starts by saying we tried and immediately the mom and one of my other sisters just starts crying you know she had not even finished what she was saying but we just ah. i think in this life there are things no matter how much knowledge you have no matter how much wisdom you have there are things life cannot prepare you for and loss is definitely one of those things, closely followed by grief. So I guess I immediately called my sister. I thought it only fair. And I told her, yeah, dad is normal. 
I broke the news to my close people at the time, family members, close friends. Of course, you start the preparations for the funeral. So, you know, for us, in our culture, as laws, usually it will take probably up to two weeks before but it gets to the day of the service. And it was decided as, for me, as the firstborn son, I would be reading his eulogy. So I remember we were in a church, a big church. It was full. And I walk up to the podium and I'm looking at his picture and I get to the words and I start reading them out because the eulogy was like two pages long. And I can remember thinking, is this what 53 years of life can be distilled down to? Two pages. And I was mad, you know. I got to probably the fifth or the sixth paragraph and it read, he was, meaning that he is not there anymore. I think for me that's when really hit me that he's gone. I think in the short time after someone loses something, I think there's a bit of a delusion that, yeah, <laughs> they might still walk back into the house and say, yeah, guys, all salam, <laughs> I'm back, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so as I read that, I broke down, broke down in front of everyone. But I remember my chest getting tight. I remember my body contracting so hard. And my cousin, who is my namesake, immediately noticed that I could not continue. So he gracefully came onto the stage and said that I will continue to read the second part. And embarrassed at what I had just done because, yeah, you're a man. How can you not even get through reading them? Imagine these are the thoughts I'm having. It's, it's crazy. So I go back, sit down, embarrassed. I put my head in my hands and I don't want to look up at anyone. So my cousin gets through the, through the eulogy, the pastor gets through the service, and now we prepare for the next day. Because now we have to travel to our country for the burial. So we get up country on the day itself. People give the tributes. So we get to the point where now we're told we have to lower the coffin into the grave. And yeah, you have to do the symbolic tossing of dirt on top of the grave. Sort of as your last respect, your last your goodbye. And um, that ceremony goes on well. That night, again, I got drunk. Something that made it worse was that now, as a son, as a firstborn son, you cannot sleep in your dead father's house. You have to sleep outside the house. It's like now the legacy is being handed over. So I remember before the funeral, I had had to construct a makeshift house. We usually call it, refer to it as a simba. So that after my dad has been put into the ground, I can never again sleep in his matrimonial home. Yeah, that went well. And then when the next week started, guys were going about their lives. Life was going on. My friends were back in school because we were about to just start doing our exams. So I had to go on with life. And I felt like the only way to try and go on with life is to try and get back into the thick of things. So I went to school. Remember, I sat down with one of the lecturers at the time. And she point blank told me, I don't think you would be ready for this exam. Seeing all that you have gone through, I think it would be prudent for you to take a special exam at a later date. But in my head, I was so defiant about trying to get back to normalcy. I was like, no, I want to do this. So I was trying not to give myself too much time to, to grieve. I felt like if I just stay at home, just sitting and thinking about this loss, I would probably go into a dark hole somewhere that I might not be able to come out. So I needed every single distraction that I could get. And the upcoming exam was just 
that focus that I need. Looking back, I think it was very brave of me, but it was also very stupid. Yeah, and um, to form, I failed my exam. So on top of dealing with loss, grieving, I failed my first ever exam in my life. Way to be kicked when you're down, you know. This means that I start the next year now without my friends who had grown so close to being in the trenches of the course. Our study groups, the times we used to have fun together. Basically, we were like a family. And then again, life moved on. They went on to their fourth year. I stayed back in third year. I had to start all over again, which I did. I had to make new friends as I watched my other friends drift further and further away from me. Not because they wanted to, but just because of the way the two years were set up. You barely got to interact. And in this time, I can only honestly tell guys that from from that time up until now, I really felt memories. I don't know if you if you understand that. You know, like like I'd actually think of my dad and it's like I'd see him there. Like I could actually see him there. I could actually smell him at times. Sometimes even begin to question what is real and what is not. But I can honestly tell guys who have never grieved before, and I'm, I don't know if other guys who have grieved before have felt this thing, but those first two, three years after loss are the best because your memory of that person that you have lost is at its strongest. So I can honestly tell you now, like there are days I long to smell. There are days I long to hear his voice. I think now we are lucky you are in a time where people can record. I wish I had voice notes. So in those earlier times, in as much as you might be in some kind of depression because of the loss, for me, I feel like it's the best time because the memories are most, most vivid. They are their best. They are their realest. They are their rawest. And you literally feel like that person is with you there. You know, you have more of those dreams where you feel like you're even hugging, talking to them. You are having fun with them somewhere. Then you wake up. You're like, oh man, it's just a dream. When you come to, because now it's probably been how many years? Like mm-hmm. 13 years later. Now I smile more when I think about him. I chuckle to myself sometimes. I can even find myself like in a room sometimes. I'm talking to him without, like in my mind, I'm talking to him. It's not as bad now. You know, you're trying to live life without this person. Yet there's a part of you that still wants to hold on. I remember the earlier stages of the grief. I would find myself crying, like ugly crying when I'm alone. Like ugly crying. I'd even see like a big puppy with a small puppy. I start crying. Like anything would set me off. I'd listen to music that would remind me. I start crying. Now it has evolved. The grief has taken on a different face now. Now I think I can control when I want to go deep, deep. Meaning that now I can tell people that story without welling up. Without feeling some kind of way. Without that chest tightness. Without that deep, dark pain that keeps gnawing at you. So yeah, it's it's quite different now. And I... I've found that in everything that happens to you, there's always there's always a reason. Or at least that's what I choose to believe. So I found that my dad's loss was not all in vain. All these things that I picked up from him, I found that they have enabled me to help 
in one way or the other, other people who have gone through the same grief, losing someone close to them. I'm so comfortable to pe- talking to people who are grieving because I've felt it, because I've known what I wanted someone to tell me, because I knew that, yeah, even after the funeral, you still need someone to check up on you. And every once in a while after that, you find that sometimes you even feel like you're talking too much about that person who has died. So you start censoring yourself. Yet you need an avenue. You need an avenue to express all this. But you also don't want to bore people all the time with death, 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 loss, loss, loss. I've found myself very comfortable in that space. And I've found that, yeah, I will always reach out to someone who is grieving. I will always be more empathetic to someone who has suffered a loss. Catch our next African stories in the next episode. Oh, I have never heard something so close to my experience with grief. Like, I know last week I told you I was watching Afterlife and it was probably the closest thing to my grief that I had seen. But Musa's story is like, whoo, 10 times closer. Especially like when you think about if you lose somebody close to you after they've battled a disease and you're part of the care system or the support system, there are moments, there are just moments like that are so, so difficult. Like I remember this one time, because when my mom was going through chemo and all of those things, she would still go to work and she came home and I remember I was in my room I think I was the only one home and she, I don't know what I was doing. I really don't know what I was doing, but she was at the foot of the stairs and she called my name, called my name. And you know, like, I don't know what I was doing. So I took a long time to, to go and she was a bit irritated by that. By the time I got there and I was irritated because I was just like, what are you calling me for? <sighs> Which is just so selfish looking back. But she was calling because she needed help to climb up the stairs. And I know it's not something that I should harp on because, you know, and I know it's not even something that she held against me because it's, it's a small thing. But then you just feel like, man, I was being so selfish. But it also gets very tiring when you're caring for for someone. And I think people don't like saying that because it makes you seem like a mean person or something. I don't know. It makes you seem like you're that you're just not a nice person. But it's. It's tiring. So I'm also thankful for the support systems, support systems. So like your friends or like just people who give you that fuel so that you can then give the patient that fuel. But it does get exhausting. There are points when you're just like, I wish I had a normal life. And then you feel so guilty for thinking those thoughts. It's just wild. It it really is just wild. Musa's story really <laughs> It just did something for me. I think I've, I cried while recording it. I cried while editing it. I'm crying now. <laughs> they had mascara. <laughs> I just hope that story does something for you guys as well. Which is why I I was like I have to I have to share it this week, like the week that I recorded. I have to share it, which I've never done with any other story that I've recorded for this podcast. Whew. Anywho, <laughs> I just have to say this. I'm I'm really sorry if, you know, the last episode and this episode are like pulling you down emotionally in some way. But I just can't move away from the fact that I, I did 
purposefully create this podcast for me to be as frank with my human experiences, to be as real and to just allow myself a space that I can be. And so I hope that you can appreciate at least that. Speaking of appreciation, I'm so thankful for the audio notes that you sent on the Legally Clueless hotline number, which you can get in the description of this episode about how you are just like I am relating with the story in this episode, you have been having that same experiences with episodes even as far back as episode 13. So yeah, I got to episode 13 where you talked about uh, finally deciding to leave your job and Max shared her story of unemployment and I can so relate. I have been unemployed for to go 2020. Um, since... Well, I graduated last year, 2019, but ever since even before that, because I had other, I had a diploma done, I had been looking for a job. So still no job, still waiting, still hopeful. Yeah, so I can totally relate to her story, especially the whole, you know, people always assume you're idol and then families can be really fucked up about it. It's all kinds of wrong but i will say that max's story has given me a bit of hope to keep applying and stuff so say thank you to her that was actually sent in by riley thank you so much riley for listening and sending that audio note in you can send through your whatsapp audio notes as well check out the description there is the legally clueless hotline number there also remember you can catch this podcast on trace radio every monday wednesday and friday at 9 a.m and at 8 p.m as well and i'd really love you to join our tribe that sounds grammatically incorrect hang on i'd really love how do i say this it'll be dope if you join the legally clueless tribe on instagram just search at legally clueless podcast and that's it for this episode of legally clueless you can share this podcast with your friends you can keep it for yourself i'm not judging just make sure you're here next week for the next episode